Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. I'd like to begin today by thanking our frequent donors, Samuel G. and Ian W., as well as my 418 Patreon supporters for helping to keep these podcasts coming your way. And also, I want to give a very special thank you to John G., whose large recent donation allowed me to buy the reading chair that I've been wanting for a long time. (laughs) You know, it's uh, the first time in over 20 years that I've had a comfortable chair with a good light to read in, and You know, for somebody like me, it's like being at a county fair and allowed to eat all the cotton candy you want. (laughs) There's a big smile on my face, if you can't tell. So uh, thank you one and all for your support this year. It's uh, really been uh, gratifying to have you behind me. Now, uh, in just a moment, I'm going to play today's somewhat brief talk by Terrence McKenna. While there were still a couple of questions left in this recording from an October 1992 workshop, I decided that they weren't interesting enough to end this podcast on, uh, after what I consider to be a really great rap about drug safety by Terrence McKenna. And that's what I'm going to end on, so I'm going to make a few brief comments right now and then let Terrence end this talk without any more comments from me. But uh, there are two things that I'd like to put some emphasis on and to prod you to think about for a little while. In fact, next year in the uh, live Monday Night Salons, I intend to use these two topics to focus our conversations on a couple of different nights. And I'll be telling you more about the new live salon format in a future podcast, but, well, that can wait till next year. For now, uh, here are a couple of things that Terrence is going to bring up in today's talk, and I hope that you give them some thoughts so that you can join in, if you want, when we discuss them in a live salon next year. Now, first of all, Terrence uses a phrase that probably has been around for a long time, but, well, I just didn't remember hearing it before. And that is the phrase, a global leveling of society. Now, obviously, that can have a lot of different meanings that I think we should look into someday. But one thing that comes to my mind right now has been something I've been thinking about for a long time. And that's what uh, a lot of us have been calling the Americanization of the world. Uh, You know, with fast food joints and stuff like that being everywhere you go now. So my question is, is this really an Americanization of the world or a global leveling of society? This, uh, I don't know myself how I feel about that, but it's something I'd like to talk with some of you about. Another issue he brings up is the difficulty of actually recognizing an alien intelligence if we encounter one. Now, if you're a science fiction fan, then you've probably read some of Stanislaw Lem's books, where he makes the argument that it is actually impossible for our species to directly communicate with an alien intelligence. And uh, while this may be just something to talk about during late-night conversations uh, that may be fueled by a little medicinal herb, well, it uh, may be more of a pressing issue in the near future as the uh, field of artificial intelligence uh, continues to pick up steam. 
If you're a Star Trek fan, uh, then you probably remember the episodes where Commander Data's uh, self-awareness and ego and personality and all were called into question. Uh, Commander Data being basically uh, a machine. <laughs> and uh, this may become more of a pressing issue than we think. Uh, anyway, it should also be a good topic for one of our live salons. Now, the main reason, however, that I'm not going to make any comments at the end of this talk is because I want to let Terrence have the last word here uh, because it's a matter of safety. Uh, safety should somebody decide to defy the laws of the land and use psychedelics. As you'll hear Terrence say, and I quote, I am terrified of psychedelics. I never take them without a sense of sickening dread, end quote. And I hope that you'll follow Terrence's uh, few simple ideas for safe travels. And now, here's Terrence. Just to the scientific community that we are devolving rather than evolving. Well, uh, you're referring to the Burgess Shale and what's his name's book, Wonderful Life, right? Yeah. Uh, I. I sort of differ with your interpretation of it. It wasn't that these things were more complex than any life forms on the earth today. It was that they represented a large number of phyla, none of which exist on the earth today. So the point that was being made by the paleontologists is apparently we started out with many different phyla and then it narrowed at some point into just a few phyla which then re-radiated out into all the forms we possess today. Uh, so I think um, other people have brought this up and it's a troubling example because it tends to throw a railroad tie against the onrushing of my rhetorical freight train, but that's the name of the game, folks. Um, it probably is true that at, at an early point in the evolution of life, I mean, it's obviously now established, there were these many, many different phyla, and for unknown reasons, certain phyla became extinct, and then the, uh, the, what, the phyla which were left radiated and filled all the abandoned niches uh, that had previously been occupied by these now extinct organisms. But nevertheless, we have to look at this question of, for reasons unknown, they became extinct. Why did some phyla survive and others not? It would be inconsistent with the theory of evolution to suggest that this happened entirely by chance. There must have been some adaptive advantage possessed by the phyla that made it through whatever these narrow evolutionary necks were, and then the phyla which survived these climatological crises or whatever they are, radiated into an incredible number of complex forms that nevertheless could be traced to a small number of earlier uh, phyla. A more in line with your the thrust of your argument, uh, a more difficult to answer objection that I don't know why I'm telling you this because it erodes my own position. But I was preaching this: the world complexifies through time. Rap at Esalen one time, and a guy was staying with me there who was uh, 
a professional Russian translator. He was a Russian and a linguist. And he said, you know, there's a major exception to your rule that all phenomena complexify through time, and, and that is language. He said, as we go back into the past, languages become richer. And I, I am still puzzling over this. I don't think it's an inherent property of language. I think it's because as we go back into the past, languages become more and more localized and local variations develop in small confined geographical areas so that then when you pour all these languages together there tends to be a certain uh, uh, leveling and this probably uh, results in a uh, in a general uh, fall in the total number of words being used in a language. In other words, if in Canada they call a windshield a windscreen and in England they call it something else, well then as long as Canada, England and the U.S. don't communicate, we have three words for windshield. But if these three cultures communicate frequently and deeply, probably a couple of these words will become obsolete or colloquial and one term will dominate. So uh, language is not evolving uh, uh, in a vacuum. You have to look at the effects of modern transportation, migrations of people, and that sort of thing. I agree that this is not, this complexification through time thing has the characteristic of a general tendency, but it's not an ironclad uh, natural law. We can see that now, for instance, uh, communism in the Soviet Union acted as a deep freeze for traditional cultures. Wonderful traditional cultures exist out on the steppes of Central Asia in Kyrgyzia, Turkmenistan, uh, Nagorno-Badakshanskaya and these places. Well, these wonderful traditional cultures are probably now all trading in their colorful garb, vocabularies, and technologies for transistor radio subscriptions to Time magazine and Der Spiegel, and generally lining up with the, the global leveling of culture that we see in the 20th century. So these are complex issues, and you're, you're right, it isn't entirely straightforward. Do you mean the one to Prague or the one to Italy? <laughs> well, well, I went to Prague to the ITA conference, International Transpersonal Association conference in June, and uh, I had never realized till I went there. It was my second trip to Czechoslovakia. But, you know, as children, we grew up with a wonderful story of an emerald green country uh, farmed by happy munchkins and ruled from a beautiful capital city built around a splendiferous palace presided over by a wizard. And I realized Czechoslovakia is Oz for grown-ups. And... Uh, it, the morphogenetic field of the place 
is such that it might be a place we should all consider as a good venue for an archaic revival. I think Prague in the 90s could be what Paris in the 20s was. It is, after all, the capital of old Bohemia. You may not know why we are called Bohemians. You don't have to have a Slavic gene in your entire family tree and can claim yourself as a Bohemian. It's because Bohemia stood for individual freedom, eccentricity, the magical arts, the practice of the arts, and uh, the, a, a science which more gently approached the union of spirit and matter. And this whole al potential alchemical civilization based around Prague was destroyed by the Thirty Years' War. If you're interested in all this, you should read Francis Yates' book, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, in which she shows that at a certain point in Western history, there was the possibility of a Protestant alchemical revival in Central Europe that was uh, bungled by a series of diplomatic and cultural misunderstandings and led instead to the Thirty Years' War, which then if, you know, it, it, before the Thirty Years' War, Europe was thoroughly medieval in its character, really, and at the end of the Thirty Years' War, modernity was launched. I mean, the absolute power of kings had been replaced by parliaments and peoples, and Prague, when the people who won the Thirty Years' War got down to redrawing the maps of Europe, they made sure that Prague fell on the wrong side of the language line and became a place that spoke a language spoken nowhere else in Europe, Czech, instead of the language that had been spoken there before the Thirty Years' War by the court, which was Italian. So it's a whole lost episode in Western history that uh, not too many people know about, but we could all return to our Bohemian roots and create a community under the gentle aegis of Vaclav Havel and similar uh, uh, philosophically right-thinking people that might be a window of opportunity. We, you know, it's very important when you're trying to make social change that you find the proper resting place for your, your fulcrum or a proper fulcrum for your lever and the best place is outside the system that you're trying to move. And if we're serious about carrying on a major critique of American society, Prague might be an excellent place from which to do it, especially if by some nightmarish fluke of fate uh, the knotheads currently in power are able to hang on. Sorry for that brief foray into politics. That, that's what Richard was trying to bait me into, yeah. Well, could you comment on what your feelings are in terms of our planet being colonized by extraterrestrials in terms of Atlantis and Lemuria or the land of moon? Yeah, I can. I'm not sure how much comfort it will give you. Um, it seems to me an underwhelming proposition. In other words, if this happened, where is the evidence? Uh, 
you know, there have been fabulous civilizations existing in the past, but their artifacts, their buildings, their earthworks are available to be visited and seen. It seems to me, you know, in trying to build models, I try to follow Occam's razor. You all know what Occam's razor is? Hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. And I just find the, the lost continent thing um, an unnecessary hypothesis. I think there are lost civilizations, but I think we do a grave injustice to our dilemma and our accomplishments by thinking that anybody ever stood in this position before. To me, you see, there's an impulse that's very old in the Western mind to um, and strangely enough, I trade on it to some degree. It's called the nostalgia for paradise. And it's that we're always looking back to a lost golden age. And I think there was a lost golden age on the plains of Africa 15 to 20,000 years ago. I discussed it this morning. But I don't think high technology has ever existed before on this planet. Well, there's just no evidence of it. And the Atlantean and people and the enthusiasts of Mu and Lemuria are always trying to fiddle with the dates and say, you know, the Great Pyramid is 25,000 years old and there's a ruin on the Nazca Plain that's 50,000 years old. This is, first of all, the evidence is absolutely unconvincing and second of all the miracle is not how old the breakout into language and technology is but how recent it I, is I, I agree with you I think that um, you know if you were to go scuba diving off of Bermuda in the Bimini Islands you would find what many people believe are artifacts from Atlantis you can hike in Decker Canyon and most of what is to be found is on the water because of the shift in the continental plate 10,000 years ago or more. But many people believe that the UFO involvement in that civilization um, is still very active today. I know someone who I believe you met last night, Robert Stanley from Unicus Magazine, who takes people on these expeditions in Decker Canyon. He took somebody at the beginning of the summer and a raw film was shot the person was from the East Coast, I believe, in Boston, and he spaced on the development of the film. He just forgot about it, and he decided, okay, I might as well get this developed, and sure enough, hovering in the distance over this part of the canyon were 12 saucers, and it's a pretty obvious picture. I saw it last night for the first time, and I'm just curious because I think that a lot of us don't really deal with a lot of the information that's coming out right now because it's overwhelming. You know, it's almost like, wow. Well, I, I, I am prepared to be convinced, but I'm not willing to buy in without a fair amount of evidence. As far as UFOs are concerned, um, I've thought a lot about it. I've seen them far away, up close, and it's not what people say it is. And the, the problem, there, there are two phenomena the UFO, who knows what that is, and then the UFO community, 
and my god these people are much weirder than UFOs I mean they the, well, the whole slew of them and the whole problem with the UFO community is apparently these people have never heard about the rules of evidence I mean they're just full of revelation after revelation with absolutely zip to back it up there are so many I mean you look at these UFO magazines well do you want to believe Master Chen Thuk of the Nabungi system or do you want to go with the the Billy Myers crowd or what's coming out of Brazil uh, I think Jacques Vallée in one of his books estimated that if you don't believe UFOs only appear where there are witnesses and uh, take the number of sightings seen by people and extrapolate that by the area of the surface of the earth you have to conclude that UFOs are coming and going from this planet at a rate of 12,000 a month well my god what kind of extraterrestrial contact is this that 12,000 a month for 50 years and never a definitive piece of evidence I was talking to one of the researchers on the fetal abduction thing this guy was all excited he said to me you know I've talked to 500 women who claim uh, surgical removal of fetuses and he said yeah, and you know the amazing thing there's not a single uh, uh, sign of physical invasion of these women's bodies and I said well Dr. X doesn't this suggest something to you and he said yeah advanced surgical techniques of which we have no knowledge I said well yeah but doesn't it I mean give me a break so I think they have to operate in the light of the same evidence as everybody else and their problem is that they claim to know too much they're just willing to tell you you know 125,000 years ago they arrived to grow sweet peas and then 100,000 years ago the project changed and the 11th planet did something too much too much data it's too Jack Armstrong-ish do you believe our government has the technology to travel in ships to other stars do you think we're doing that today or do you think that's our future no I don't think we're doing that today I mean this is a we have a government that can't uh, knock off uh, a loud mouth in Baghdad let alone travel to other stars so you believe our space program pardon me program is limited to what NASA tells us the reality of what's going on and that's basically you don't think there's like an underground or a whole network of societies and organizations within our government that are involved in research and technology well obviously there is a black portion of the government where research goes on and probably fairly kinky things are carried out but these people are no different from us I mean some of them may be here today and I don't mean cops I mean you know there may be NASA scientists here today that we are not so different from the people we're talking about human beings cannot keep a secret you may bank on it and so the idea that you know somebody possesses a technology thousands of years in advance of us I mean then when you actually tear the lid off some of these government black operations you don't find super scientists and brilliant minds you find people like Gordon Liddy and John Dean and you know half-wit clowns uh, seem to lie behind most of this I, I believe that no I am not a conspiracy 
person. I believe that nobody is in control and that the people who seek control are the most misguided of all and that there's a great deal more than we don't know than we do know. And, uh, you know, I would love to be convinced that something really far out were happening, but it just always seems to come apart in your hands. These are, I, I consider stuff like the UFO phenomenon as popularly um, commercially available UFO beliefs as basically viruses of language, diseases of understanding. If you could teach people about the laws of evidence and how you build a case and stuff like that, then people wouldn't be troubled by this. The same fuzzy thinking that permits people to believe in UFOs permits them to believe in the imminent uh, expectation of the second coming or you know, the face of Christ appearing on tortillas and all of this stuff. Ter Terrence, may, may I stop here for a second? Uh, is there a lot of people still with questions? Because we still have a lot of time, well, at least till 6 o'clock, supposedly. Um, it, can I have a show of hands? If, okay, there's a few more. Because we want to sort of limit the questions to one question per person and, and sort of one rebuttal from that so that everybody can get a fair share before we uh, make a final. Yeah. Is this a gentle hint to stop raving about UFOs? just trying to make sure you're the UFOs. He doesn't want to hear any more about it. Oh, I see. Well, I'll, I say to the UFO people the same thing, you know, what can you show us? Drag it forth. Everything has to be judged on the same field. It, it, if you've got something, spill it. But to claim, you know, as I, I don't want to use names here, but stories like, well, we met the UFOs and they gave us a message from mankind, but when we got back to our car, our tape recorder had miraculously erased itself. Well, then be quiet. Don't tell anybody this. Don't you understand how lame that sounds to the doubter? It's, it's not the believer you have to convince. They're a pushover. What are you going to do about your skeptics? That's the problem. Well, you want me to tell you a story? I was in the Amazon. Um, I was in a state of considerable psychic turmoil. And uh, I sat up all night. This is told, by the way, in the book, True Hallucinations, which will be published next year. And uh, at dawn, I looked across this lake and there was a thin line of clouds on the horizon and uh, I watched this line of clouds and they were and then suddenly I noticed that they were turning in place like a pencil spinning on its axis in one place and then the clouds uh, this line of clouds broke apart into four perfectly identical lenticular clouds and then the lenticular, the four lenticular clouds merged into two lenticular clouds, and then the two merged into one. And as they merged into one, I I heard the the whee 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 sound of Hollywood science fiction flying saucers, and I realized this thing was coming toward me across the lake, and it was absolutely 
convincing it was a flying saucer, the real thing. And, and I, I was absolutely convinced that it was going to take me at that moment. And as it passed over, only about 200 feet above my head, I could see it clearly enough that I could see rivets on its underside. I could see its running lights. I could see it. But you know what I saw? I saw the end cap of a 1932 model Hoover vacuum cleaner. It was the very same flying saucer that George Adamski suspended from a piece of mylar fishing line in 1953 and photographed in his garage one of the most famous UFO hoaxes of all time. I saw it a diameter of 40 feet over the Amazon basin and I knew what I was looking at. It was uh, more disturbing than if it had been a ship from Zeta Reticuli because it had built-in cognitive dissonance. Uh, what? Well, see, I, I believe you completely. I don't have any problem with that. It's simply an enormous leap to say that that was a craft from another star. It's much better to just say it's a who knows what it is. The world is full of weird stuff. It, just briefly, here's my best theory on flying saucers and a whole bunch of other stuff. This tries to solve all problems of this sort simultaneously. The transcendental object at the end of time, let's drag it in here, and let's imagine that it is like those mirrored balls that they hang in discos above the bar and spin. So then I think that definitely there is a forward movement of causal necessity which propels us from the past into the present on into the future, but that there is also and necessary to account for precognitive visions and stuff like that, which happen all the time, a flow of information from the future into the past. And the transcendental object at the end of time is casting reflections of itself backward into the past. And if you are struck, whatever that means, by one of these scintillas from the transcendental object at the end of time, then you begin to cure and teach. And if you really got a good hit, possibly raise the dead. I mean, I'm not sure how far it can go. Now, also, these, these images of the transcendental object at the end of time haunt the skies of this planet in the form of spinning vortices of contradiction. This is what Jung said. He said, you know, the UFO is an image of the self. And I don't mean the little self. I mean the collective self of humanity. So a story like Jim's story is... I have no problem with it. I take it as true. It's the people who say 
you know, and they revealed the nature of the fall of Atlantis and the world plan, then it's too much because it's coming through human interpretation. The horrible thing about the UFO people who claim contact is that the, the aliens they present to us are so incredibly mundane. So much more mundane than what you would encounter on a DMT flash <laughs> that they're just like the neighbors next door. Uh, I think that, you know, alien intelligence, the trick is not to find it, but to recognize it when it's in front of you. Intel intelligence is a very slippery concept. Sometimes we can't even identify it in the person sitting next to us on the bus. So how can you expect to identify the intelligence of an alien? It, it just seems incredibly unlikely to me. I think the world is a lot stranger than we suppose without evoking benevolent aliens who prefer vegetarian diets and who come from the stars. I mean, why do they so fit our preconception of what they would be? I mean, silvery humanoids. Uh, alien intelligence and alien life when and if you meet it you'll know you're in the presence of the real thing because you'll be barely able to wrap your mind around it yeah I'm basically in agreement with you I was kind of pondering over the edge you know maybe there's a certain sense of reality about it maybe there is maybe there is it could you know, be a holographic a projection out of the guy in mind yeah. it could be uh, you know, a race of intelligent saurians that rose and fell before the asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. It could be all and everything. The trick is to try and get some kind of evidentiary hold on it. Yeah. Parents, uh, this is a nut and bolt question. Um, but first I'd like to preface it by saying that I haven't used psychedelics in 20 years and uh, haven't used marijuana in seven, and am, have been considering uh, return to the use of psychedelics. And um, when I stopped, the last experience which I had, it wasn't a terrifying experience and it wasn't a bad trip. It was um, similar, it presents similar insights that I have heard you mention and speak of. But there were times in which my psychedelic use um, left me uh, rather shaken and terrified, um, dealing with um, fear of death and crossing over the line. Though so I have to say that my very first psychedelic experience was one which contained a death and rebirth experience. So I don't know why after that, but that's the nature of fear, I suppose. Um, so the question is, it's a nut and bolt question, it's um, uh, how does one proceed with the use of psychedelics after a long absence from it and uh, not make the mistakes and not run into the walls um, that I occasionally ran into. And or and or deal with them, get around them, um, so forth and so on. Well, I think the best protection against unpleasant experiences on psychedelics is to do it with care and attention in environments that are safe and 
low on sensory input. In other words, you don't take it and go to a crowded singles bar or even a rock and roll concert. I mean, if you have to combine psychedelics with rock and roll, do it with low doses. No, I, I took it uh, in the desert in the mountains. Well, this is the way to do it. It isn't always going to be ecstatic, but it's, al it's almost always guaranteed to be educational. There's no way you can seal yourself off from shock because shock may be what you need. Uh, but you can... Attention to it. I mean, fasting, going into it, cleaning yourself up, creating a safe space, not going to it if you've just been highly agitated by some emotional upheaval in your life and then take a long time to integrate it and think about it. It's basically, in the best sense of the word, a religious activity. And, it's and the intellect or whatever it is that lies behind it is very sensitive to your needs and your limits. And unless you approach it with a cavalier attitude, it will usually be very gentle with you. Now this fear of death thing though is a hard thing to come to terms with because um, you know it's we are going to die, it's scripted into the human experience. Culturally there's a great deal of anxiety around this and basically I think what one has to do is simply ride it out in terms of advice as to what you do once you have are, are in the middle of an unpleasant revelation. Um, you can sing your way through that. You can smoke cannabis to, to shake up the pieces on the board. Uh, or, and you can just wait and put up with it. it the, the real issue you see around fear on psychedelics is a surrender issue. The ego plays a trick on you because the ego begins to dissolve under the influence of the psychedelic and uh, the ego sends you the message you are dying <laughs> this is its last most desperate ploy to halt what is happening because the ego is dying and to the degree that you identify with the ego you'll be driven into a state of panic that joke about the Lone Ranger and Tonto are surrounded by Indians and the Lone Ranger says, well, it looks like the end of the trail, partner. And Tonto says, uh, or he says, it looks like the end of the trail for us, partner. And Tonto says, what mean us, pale face? Um, and you can sing. It will respond to being sung to I am always, I am terrified of psychedelics. I never take them without a sense of sickening dread pervading me. Because I figure, you know, I stand up in front of people and preach this stuff, and if it wants to get me, it will really get me good. And what I say to it when I take it, I say, I, I am... Surrendering, I am surrendering myself to you completely. 
do what you will with me. Please don't hurt me. And if you must kill me, please do it quickly. And, uh, but I, I know people who have tried to order it around, heavy male dominator types who want to beat information out of it. And, my God, they have bad trips so terrifying that they never come back to it again because if it decides to turn on you, it has resources that would make your head stand on end. So he does it gently, reverently, and with a great deal of attention. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.